so what I want to do this morning is basically uh, say three points uh, about hell. The good news about hell, uh, the bad news about hell, and what is wrong with our world. But before I do that, I want to pray. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the good news about hell. Let's pray. Uh, God, I'm, my own sense is there's, there's a number of us in this room, and hell is mentioned, and it's just, uh, it's just we're turned off to the idea. It just sounds awful. Others of us might be a little bit too excited because we've identified who's going, and we know really with certain clarity about who the enemies are, who the bad people are. Um, and yet if we read Revelation, we are, this is a sober proposition. Meant for us to look in at our own selves and our own lives, but not at our enemies. So that puts me in the weird spot of preaching this text when I need to do my own self-work around this doctrine. So I pray you guard my own heart against such practices, and you'd lead us into the sober judgment of what judgment means for this world and for us. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So point one, the good news about hell. If, if, if you choose not to believe in this doctrine or take it seriously, I think you have two problems. And I can explain uh, those problems to us, those two problems to us, or we can watch a two-minute clip from Modern Family. Uh, can we take a vote? I think I know how that would go. Uh, take a look. Look at that. It's a perfect shot. I hit that with a bent club. So you're not worried about getting in trouble? You know, with God? Oh, I think he's got bigger things on his plate. So you're not worried about hell? Let me let you in on a little secret, kid. There is no hell. Seriously? No hell? That's fantastic! So everyone just goes to heaven? Yep. End of story. Even bad people? Yeah, they're, they're, they're in another section. See, they got this thing figured out. Can I hit this? You distracted me. I didn't say anything! I hear you're thinking. I'm thinking about this heaven of yours that's full of bad people. Not full, the tiniest fraction. They're walled in. What if they break out? They're surrounded by a lake that's at the bottom. There are fiery lakes in heaven. This is turning into hell. Tell me about it. I just don't understand this bad section of heaven. What if they send you to the wrong place? They made mistakes with paperwork sometimes. I was put in a girl's health class last year not to watch a very disturbing movie. Calm down. Instead of thinking all morning about what heaven's going to look like, what it's not going to look like, who's where, if there even is a heaven, why don't we just concentrate on this beautiful, carefree day that's in front of us? I'd rather concentrate on something you just said. There might not even be a heaven. I don't know. You seemed pretty sure of yourself this morning. So what happens after you die? There's just nothing? Look, you're focusing too much on one little thing that I said. It was just a hunch, okay? A hunch? I'm skipping church based on a hunch? All right, I don't freak out on me here, please. Still playing pretty fast and loose with my soul. Listen, I want you to forget everything that I said, okay? Some things can be forgotten, Jake. All right, so uh, two problems if you don't believe in hell. The first is if, if there's no hell, your decisions are, are meaningless, right? Like, just do what you want. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're, you're bad or good. And Manny, of course, he's, he's approaching this in a very humorous uh, way, but his earnest questions are, are real. What about, what about people who do really evil things, bad people? So it doesn't matter what we do, just go golf on uh, Sunday. That's what life is. Just do what you want. In Revelation,
Revelation is where it teaches the precise opposite of that. I mean, verse 12. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So what we do matters. And more importantly, um, or as importantly, what is done to us matters to God. Now, some people uh, find this to be creepy, right? God is the cosmic hall monitor. He's taking notes. He's micromanaging our lives. He has way too much time on his hand. He's peering through his heavenly window like a weird neighbor. But that's not how the Bible describes God. God describes, or the Bible describes God as our father who loves us, who gave his son for us. And when he sees this world, he's not some nosy neighbor who needs a light. He is our creator, our sustainer, and he cares deeply how we treat one another, how we are treated, the injustices we experience, the pain we experience. He cares about those things. And so this is how Becky Pippert encourages us to think about these, this aspect of God in our lives. Think how, when we, how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respi- respond with benign tolerance as we might toward strangers across borders? Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the sinful world, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole if I see someone mistreating, harming one of my own children, I am going to care about that. And so God cares about this world, what goes uh, on in this world, because he's not indifferent, which of course means he's not indifferent to you. He's not indifferent to your suffering, to your pain, the way others have harmed you. And that's ultimately good news, that what we do in this life matters. And what happens to us in this life matters. That's what hell is saying. Problem two uh, is if there is no hell, there, there is no peace. Right? So as Manny asks, if there's no hell, where do the bad people go? And if the answer is, well, there's no hell, either in that there's no heaven or no hell, we die and that's it, the universe is, is you know, goes away, or everyone goes to heaven in the end, um, then that means there's no justice in the end. There is no, uh, there is no answer to all of the evil that's done in the world, which means we need to take matters into our own hands. Because no one is ever going to take matters into their own hands. Right? There's no one who's going to write justice. And God's essential take on the world is, well, you know, people did some things. Let's all just get along. That, and that, that becomes the turning point. And Miroslav Volf, uh, a theologian from Croatia, has written convincingly that the, the place, the only place that struggles to believe in hell is places of affluence and very little suffering. Which is, broadly speaking, the culture you and I live in. Here's what he writes. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance that will be in popular demand in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results in the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, they will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of a liberal mind. And so you think through all, all of what we've been in, through the book of Revelation, 
Christians have repeatedly been promised suffering and violence done against them. But never once are Christians encouraged to take up violence against their enemies. Never once. In fact, they are called to suffer for their enemies. They are called to preach the gospel, even though it will lead to certain suffering. And one of the reasons why the, the, the book can say that is because of the doctrine of hell. What God is saying is, listen, I will make right what has been wrong. Your work in this world is not to take up violence for yourself. It is not to take up war against your enemies. Your role is to preach the gospel, to pray for those who persecute you, to stay faithful to the way of Jesus in a world that will increasingly become hostile to you. And the way you endure that suffering and that opposition is hell, is the doctrine of hell. We trust judgment to God, which frees us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, because we know God will have the final word. I don't have to. And so my posture towards my enemies is one of love and service and suffering and preaching the gospel. That's the book of Revelation, right? The book of Revelation is God will take care of judgment. You go and suffer for your enemies and tell people. That is Revelation. And the doctrine of hell helps us to go and to be led there. So that's the good news about hell. God cares about what happens in his world. He cares about what happens to you and me. And secondly, you and I are freed up to be people of peace, of good news to, to the world because we know in the end God will have the final word. So that's the good news about hell. Okay, so what's the bad news about hell? Well, there are two evils, I think, all of us would name that we want God to get rid of. All right, so let me just start with the things that we would all agree. These are evils. God, you should consign them to hell. People who do these things should not be allowed into hell. Evil one, let's talk about human trafficking. Right, especially of, of in, in the broader context of the world, younger girls, human trafficking. People who do that, I think we would all agree, are the worst kind of evil they should be consigned to, to hell. So we can all agree on God that anyone who practices in human trafficking uh, should be sent to hell. There's a problem with that. Uh, what Jesus says in Matthew 5 when he says this. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So Jesus, Jesus is saying two things here. First is that the real problem of all sin that is ultimately sexual is lust. And as long as there's lust, there will be adultery. As long as there's adultery, there will be things like human trafficking. So you have to eliminate all lust from the universe in order to eliminate all adultery and all potential for human trafficking. And secondly, uh, that is why there is a hell, because that's where lust will be consigned. Jesus is saying, if you don't take care of this, this life leads to hell. So you need to, you've got to cut it off right now. You've got to stop right now. Of course, he's speaking metaphorically, not literally. But th there's this trajectory here. And so, listen, you follow that progression, and what that means is to eliminate human trafficking from the universe will require eliminating far more than a few people a long way off doing bad things. It will requ require eliminating anyone who lusts. Because to lust is to open yourself up to adultery, is to up open yourself up to further trajectories of sin. And Jesus is saying, if you lust, you're in danger of hell. You're on a trajectory. 
So what starts is like, oh, yeah, to minimal human trafficking. Now suddenly a lot more people are wrapped up in what it means to condone human trafficking. Evil two, another evil I think we can all agree we should get rid of, is genocide, is murder. But again, Jesus says something problematic here. Matthew 5, again, the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So again, we're, we all want to get rid of genocide. We all want to get rid of murder, right? That, that, we all agree on that. But Jesus says to, to do that, to get rid of all murder genocide, we must get rid of all anger and everyone who insults other people. That is all being consigned to hell too because the root of genocide, the root of murder, is incest, is anger. And you, are you beginning to see our problem? What is wrong with the world? If, if God is only going to send uh, the really bad people, as Mary says, to hell, to the lake of fire, it doesn't just mean consigning all the Hitlers and the really evil people that we can all agree took evil to in sin. It means consigning anyone who lusts, anyone who is, insults other people, anyone who gets angry in unrighteous ways. All, anyone who does that has within them the seed of hell. And all of that must be gotten rid of <laughs> before God brings in the new heavens and the new earth. And so in light of that, let's consider two things today. First, that the university of hell is real. The evil of hell is not limited to a few spectacular examples. Hell is universal. So in the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he writes, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and that were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy and keep his own heart? Now, what I find really interesting about this quote is, is Solzhenitsyn writes, as someone who suffered at the hands of communist Russia in the gulag. In other words, he was an innocent sufferer at the hands of a corrupt, uh, evil, uh, authoritarian state. And yet he doesn't leave that experience by saying, I'm the innocent person and the, the evil people per, uh, persecuted me, which would have been entirely understandable. No, what he says is, my experience in the gulag is a reminder of how much evil is present in my own heart. He wrote those words reflecting on his time as a prisoner in a gulag, innocent sufferer, in a concentration camp. And he does not say, we must stop all of the evil people over there. His response is, evil is universal. I'm wrapped up in it. You're wrapped up in it. And if God is to set his eye on destroying evil, he is setting his eye on you. He is setting his eye on you. And I think in, in a day of increased demonization of people who are different than us, folks, I, I saw a statistic recently that both, both people of both political parties now, over 50%, think of their political opponents as evil. Right? I'm the good, righteous person with the right views of the world. They're the evil ones. Hell obliterates that. Hell says, nope. The evil does not run along party lines. It does not long, run along even along religious lines. 
we are all wrapped up in this. And if God is to shed his eyes on, on a final judgment, you and I are all in his, in, his, in his sights. You are in his sights. That's the bad news about hell. So that's the, the university of hell, that's bad news. The secondly, the trajectory of hell. The, the second thing Jesus says is that like, there's a trajectory here, right? It's like if, you're, if you have anger in your heart, if you're insulting someone else, you have got to stop because you are on a trajectory that over time will lead you straight to hell. And if you don't stop now, if you don't take this seriously, you are in danger. And so what Jesus said, listen, he's not saying one act of anger is the worst or one, act, one insult is, you know, then you've lost your salvation. That's not what he's saying, but he's saying you're on a path. You're on a trajectory. Nurse your anger and given enough time, you will murder someone. Maybe just murder someone's reputation, but you will, or maybe, you know, it will go to physical violence. But give your anger enough oxygen and you will harm someone. And so C.S. Lewis talks about this in, in a really vivid way. He writes, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you turn the wrong cheek. And there will be no let you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on forever like an eternity. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nursed in the bud. If your anger was given a thousand years to grow, who would you be in a thousand years? Or indeed, if your lust was able to grow for a thousand years, who would you be in a thousand years? If we're eternal beings made in the image of God, and we are, what are the, what's the thousand year implications of your current sins, your 2,000 year implications of your current sins? And the answer to that question is hell. It's the grumble itself. It's the sin itself going on for eternity where you have lost all sense of your own distinctness. And so the good news about hell is God is going to judge evil forever and ever. He's going to do away with it, which is good news. The bad news is God is going to judge evil forever and ever, and I'm wrapped up in it. And so are you. So what do we do? What's wrong with the world, and how does Revelation provide us a way forward of an answer? Um, and in in his book, uh, The Habits of the Heart, sociologist Robert Bella says that the primary way of thinking in, in our culture, in the Western world, is something called expressive individualism. And what that means, the most fundamental belief of our own culture is that we arrive at truth individually. No one should decide for me what to think or believe. And so he points out 80% of, of Americans, and this was, he wrote this 30, 40 years ago. I would imagine this number is higher now. 80% um, of Americans would agree with this statement. An individual should arrive at his own, his or her own religious beliefs independent of any church or synagogue. And what he goes on to say is, and there's something true about that statement, certainly. Um, in a, but what he's saying is that no other person, no other institution, no other community, no other uh, outside influence on me should ever be able to tell me what to think, what to believe, how to behave. I get to decide that for myself. I'm the final arbiter of what is right and wrong for me. And so Bella says that's the core identity of our culture, which is where you get little you know, sayings like, you do you, follow your own heart. I decide for myself what is right, and no one outside of me can challenge that, question that or confront that. And oftentimes what happens when they do is we just move on to a community that more fits our desires that will not confront us, that will not challenge us, that will not question us. 
And if you're sitting there thinking, man, yeah, people like that are awful. No, no, no. That is the water you and I live in. That is how you and I see the world. I am my own final authority. That is the water we stand on. And so to ask the question, what is wrong with the world, it's ultimately this. What's wrong with the world is that I don't want God. Because God gets in the way of what is truly important to me. Me. And anything that gets in the way of me has to go. And God most certainly gets in the way of me. Which means someone has to go. God? Or my own vision for my own life as, my, as me being my final authority. That I and we, all of us, are on a collision course with God. I have evil inside of me that I want to nurse and live for and make my final authority. And God is going to destroy all of that. And so the question becomes, how does that tension get resolved? And in the end, Revelation presents us with two choices. You can, we will respond to God in one of two ways. Revelation. Choice one is war. We will war with God. Now, uh, the final judgment is depicted a couple of times in Revelation, maybe three times, depending on how you read it. But one of the moments is Revelation 19, verses 19. And here you get a little bit of an image of what the final judgment looks like. So Jesus comes, he's on a white horse, he's doing war with the world, and this is what John sees. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, Jesus, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So the final battle is Jesus and his armies and the horse and everyone else going to war against him. The other place the final judgment is depicted is Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 through 14, and and we read uh, this here. Uh, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Almighty. There's a couple of interesting things there. First, if you have ever found frogs to become really creepy, apparently they are demonic spirits. That's what Revelation 16 is saying. There, that's humorous. You don't, do not take what I just said seriously. The second thing, and more importantly, that I am being serious about is everyone is gathered with the kings of the earth to do war against God and his people and, and Jesus. That the common description of people who will face hell in Revelation is they are going to war against God. This is really important because I grew up with a caricature of hell, which is essentially that when people are getting, getting sent to hell, they're like, no, please don't send me there. And God's like, I don't care. Go to hell. You know, that, like, that's the character that we're given. But that's not what Revelation teaches. Not, nowhere in the Bible is that taught. What is taught is people going to war against God because they hate him and they do not want him. And they're doing everything they can to stake out their own place on earth to the extent that they will go to war against God himself. Because God is a threat to our self-sovereignty. And the nearer God gets to us, the more of a threat he becomes. And the more God insists he, he runs the world his own way and that your life must align with his way, the more that means that the one thing we are committed to is our own self-sovereignty. Is I determine for myself what is right and wrong that I get to do what I want to do, that I get to live how I want to live, I get to think what I want to think, I get to do what I want to do, 
God's presence is not going to be a welcome experience for you. You're going to resist it. And we see glimpses of this in our own world, in our own day. I mean, listen, when you, when you invite someone to consider sin in their own life, something they've seen and see, something you've seen in them that you're concerned about, and they react angrily to you. Now listen, there's sometimes we do that, we're just jerks, and that's, that's what the reaction should be. But there's sometimes you throw it out, hey, listen, I think you need to consider this. And they react attacking you with anger, right? Like, let's be honest, when we do that, First of all, we all do that, right? We all react in in those ways. But that's hell. That's the war. When someone considers us to consider some, or when someone asks us to consider something, and the response isn't just disagreement or questions for clarification, but anger and opposition and defiance, that's the war. That's God coming in and saying, listen, we got to talk about your life and how it's being lived. And us responding, how dare you? I'm my own authority. Get away. That's why C.S. Lewis, in his credible book on hell, The Great Divorce, says this. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that fiercely and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek triumph, those who knock, it is their turn. Every person consigned to hell in Revelation is making war against God. And there will be a day when God says, no more. The war is over. I'm ending it. And and just to be made clear, one of the reasons for Jesus' own delay is he's giving people more opportunities to lay down their arms, to give up the war, to humble themselves before God. God, and so choice one is to refuse to confront the evil in your own heart, to only see it in other people. And that will grow over time into a war against God. It's growing into a war against God right now. This isn't a future problem. This isn't something you need to think about five years from now. You need to think about this right now. I mean, Jesus makes that very clear with lust, with anger, with all types of things. You need to take this seriously now. When have other people confronted you with this? Have you listened? Have you let God confront you? Or are you warring against him? So that's choice one, is war. We go to war against God. Choice two, and, and listen, if you're like, man, hell, this is, this ha- and it is, uh, we're going to be in heaven for six weeks after this. So, so choice two, and this is where we're going to end, is, is worship. So in Revelation 20, we can either make war against God, be judged for what we've done, or our names will be found written in the book of life. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the question should become, what's the book of life? And the book of life is mentioned a couple of times in Revelation, but there's one place where we get a little bit more information about what the book is, what the nature of the book is. In Revelation 13, the context is the beast is killing Christians, is persecuting the church, right? Is Satan's plan to destroy the church. And John is given an envision, a, a vision of encouragement for the church to keep going, to not quit. And we get this little line in Revelation 13, 8, about what the book of life is. Authority was given it, the beast, over every tribe and people and language and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has, who has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book 
of the life of the Lamb be revealed. Now we know this is not just the book of life, but it's, it's the Lamb's book. It's the Lamb who was slain. It's, it's his book. And that takes us back to the, the beginning of Revelation, to Revelation 5, 9. That there's this moment in Revelation 5 where God is ready to begin his end-time salvation of the world and to eradicate evil. But no one is able to open the seal. No one's able to begin the plan. And so John, who sees this, he weeps because he's like, evil's, evil's going to win. And then a lamb appears. And we read this about this lamb in Revelation 5, 9. What makes him worthy to, to bring God's salvation to the world. Revelation 5, 9, for you were slain, right? The book of the life of the Lamb who was slain, for you were slain, Revelation 5, 9, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The response of of worship, to let God near us, that is still a threat to us. Worship is as much of a threat as war is. But worship is when I see the threat of God to my own self-sovereignty, and I welcome it. I see in him grace and mercy, kindness and salvation. And I say to him, go to work on this. Save me, especially from myself. Because he's not just a lamb. He doesn't just have a book. He was slain for us. His blood was shed for us. He was raised to new life for us. Anyone who comes to us with critique or with pushback or with your life is not going the direction it needs to go, who has shed blood for us, we're going to listen to that being. And Jesus, the Son of God, who owes us nothing, who gave us our life and we took it to make our own self-sovereign way of living, he still, he still sheds his blood for us. He still becomes the lamb who was slain for us. And that should make us fall before him in worship and say, do whatever you must. In the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the most powerful scenes in the whole series comes in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which has the best opening sentence of any book I think I've ever read. It begins like this. There was a boy whose name was Eustace Clarence Scrugg, and he almost deserved it. I just love that. And that's because if you've read the book, Eustace is awful. He's a whiner. You hate him. And then over time, like there's sort of the end of the book, he's a dragon. And the culminating scene is where Aslan, the Christ-like figure in the story, offers to undragon him. It's this awful little boy who just complains and whines all the time. Aslan comes and offers to undragon him, and so that's what happens. Uh, But the lion told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself, and scales began coming off all over the place. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. In other words, I tried to do, I tried to do it myself, and, no, and nothing changed. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it's safe. You will have to let me undress you first. I was afraid of its claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate. So I just lay flat on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff work. I love that scene because it says says two things. One is you cannot take the evil off yourself. 
you can handle by scratching the scales on the dragon. You cannot take care of the evil in your own life. You are helpless before it. But secondly is, if you're going to let God take care of it for you, if, if you're going to worship him, it is going to be incredibly painful because God is a threat. He's a threat to us. But not to the real me, not to the real me. He's a threat to the dragon me. He's a threat to the hellish evil that exists in me. And the question I always hear posed when we get to the end of Revelation is, how do we get to heaven? Do you want to go to heaven? But that's the wrong question. The question Revelation poses is, do you want God? If you want God, heaven is heaven. If you don't want God, heaven's never going to be heaven. If you want to be your own self-sovereign being, heaven will not be enjoyable for you. That's why hell exists. The question Revelation poses is, do you want God? And here's what wanting God looks like. It's repentance. So we see we are dragons born to war against God. We want to be our own sovereign self. We do not want anyone else telling us what to do. And we have to repent of all that. We have to give it up. We have to lay it before him in worship, seeing him as worthy. It's repentance. Wanting God is confession. We name it with a communion, right? It's not, I don't have my own private sin experience that no one else gets to talk about. And it's, hey, this is me and God. You leave me alone. No, no, no. We confess it in the life of a community with a church, right? The defining statement of this community is we are sinners saved by grace. We are dragons who are being undressed by the Lord Jesus. And we do that in baptism, in community, with ample grace for one another. And more than anything, we, we do it through faith. We have, we, we have to come to see that Jesus is the only path to salvation. We cannot write our names in his book. It's his book. And yet, through his own blood, he offers us that through his sacrifice. Have you repented? Have you confessed with a community that you are a sinner in need of grace? And have you come to Jesus in faith that he is the only one who can make you right? Have you done that? If not, I would love to talk to you. If yes, if you are someone in the way of Jesus, you need to fully embrace the doctrine of hell, which is not for other people somewhere else. It's for you. You need to let Jesus tear away your hellish scales, feel the pleasure of the pain of him tearing away of you, even when it feels like it's cutting into your own heart. Not because he enjoys doing that, not because he's some weird, creepy neighbor who wants to critique you for the rest of your life, but because he is compassionate because he is the lamb whose blood was shed for you, who ransomed you, who freed you, who killed the dragon to make you a daughter of the king, a son of the king, and to write your name in his book. And just imagine that with me right now. Your name, if your faith is in Jesus, there is a book in heaven right now kept by Jesus himself that was that was begun to be written by his own blood being shed in it, where your name is written. Or maybe that's the question that we should all be asking. Is my name written in this book? Let's pray. Father, even hearing those words I've, I've been meditating on this week, it just feels like very real, and it's why there's a hell, it's why there's a judgment. Because you will not allow uh, the war to go on into the new heavens and new earth. And yet, 
right alongside that significant and, and very real evil that Jesus warns us about is the blood of your son, is the cross. And now, God, is your table where you tell us, stop trying to do it on your own. You can't. This is why I've done it for you. Come and embrace my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. And so I pray for those who have never made that embrace or who are, are waffling in that way, who are unsure, that Jesus is the way. God, would your spirit speak to their hearts each day? And to those of us in the room who are in the way of Jesus, would, would hell properly sober us to confront our own, own evil, but would grace properly encourage us? This is not on us. We're, we cannot embrace ourselves. We must trust you. And so, God, help us. And we pray in Jesus' name.